Well, good morning. Or should I say, good morning? I can't believe you took that joke away from me. Man. Oh, it is a gift, though, uh, how God made each of us so uniquely. And I know for each one of you, he's made you uniquely as well. This week, as I've been digging into God's love, my prayer over and over again has been that the Lord would give us, by his Spirit, glimpses into his love that we specifically need, that each one of us specifically needs for our life and for we, where we are at, that we could get glimpses of his glory, of his beauty and goodness. My prayer is that these glimpses would fill our hearts, would capture our imaginations and change the way that we worship and experience God in our everyday lives. We're In a minute, we're going to read from 1 John chapter 4. Um, but before we do that, could you just pray with me that God would do that by His Spirit in each one of us this morning? Give us glimpses of Him. Father, as we come to You and, and look at Your Word, hear what You have said about Yourself and Your love, Lord, we need Your Spirit to be active, to be filling each one of us. Would You teach us? Would You transform us? Would you bring things to mind that very specifically you know that each one of us needs to know you and to love you? And we know that that is actually your act of love towards us when you do that. We pray this in Jesus' name, expecting your presence, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's do that. Let's start by reading 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to uh, read verses 7 to 21 just to give us a good chunk of, of what John is saying. This will give us have a high-level view, and then we'll drill down into the details together. 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
So as we've seen throughout this letter of 1 John so far, John conveys truth in a less linear way than some of our other New Testament authors like Peter or Paul. Rather than building an argument a step at a time to some grand conclusion, John does things in a more circular route, often repeating himself for emphasis. You can see him doing that in our passage this morning. He covers a fair amount of ground, mentioning a number of really big topics, abiding in Christ, the atonement, propitiation that Jay preached on a couple weeks ago. I'd encourage you to listen to that sermon if you haven't heard it. Talks about the day of judgment and the new birth. Now, all of those would be worthy topics for a sermon, but this morning I want to focus our attention on the main theme that John is driving toward. Over and over again, he reiterates the centrality of love related both to who God is and also to how God loves us. And then it goes on to talk about how each one of us responds to this love of God. Love is one of the key themes of this letter. You can see it in this picture. This is a word cloud. I took every word from 1 John, copied and pasted it into a website that then generated this word cloud. The more times that a word appears, the larger it will be in relation to the other words. The less times it appears, the smaller it will be in this word cloud. Look at how large the word love is on the left there. And uh, my wife Jess pointed out to me this morning, right below the word commandments is the word beloved as well. So if you add that together, it's even larger. But really, the only other word that comes close is the word God. God is primary, and then we see love. I went through and marked each time love was used in what we just read, and I counted it 27 times in just that chunk of Scripture that we read. But John uses it 43 times throughout his letter. So this is a key emphasis that he has. This morning, we're going to focus on the vertical aspect of that love. That is, God's love for us and our love for God. Next week, we're going to focus on the horizontal love where humans are loving other human beings. You might have noticed when we read this that it starts and ends with a command to love one another. But as we'll see as we unpack this, the love of God always precedes our love for each other. So this week we're going to start with that vertical aspect of love. And I want us to start with the phrase, the short phrase, God is love. And we're going to camp most of our time on that phrase. It occurs in verse 8, and then you can see it in the middle of verse 16. God is love. It functions as an anchor of truth that the rest of what he says is attached to and then orients around that God is love. It conveys something about the very nature of God, who God is and what God is like. If you think about it, could there be anything more important than an accurate understanding of who the invisible God is and what he is like? I can't think of much else that could be more important than actually knowing who the one true God is and what he is like. It determines how we respond to him, how we love him or don't love him, how we fear him or avoid him or worship him. It's what creates true and false narratives about how God operates in the world. Those true and false narratives affect both those who follow Jesus and those who don't follow Jesus. 
A true narrative about God is one that flows out of who he really is and how he really operates and interacts with his world. A false narrative is formed from a false belief about God or maybe a half-truth about God that then becomes a complete untruth when we apply it to our life. For followers of Jesus, these narratives that we have in our head about God come from our beliefs and end up determining how we interact with God, how we perceive Him, and how we perceive that He relates to us as we go about our lives. For example, the statement or maybe the thought, God loves me more on the days when I read the Bible and pray. God loves me more on the days when I read the Bible and pray. Now, not only does that thought hinder those times of soaking in the word and prayer by making it about me, that thought immediately makes that activity of praying and being in the word all about me. So it hinders it. It's supposed to be about basking in his love, not earning his love. So not only does it do that, but it's also completely false. It is not coming from who God truly is. It comes from a false understanding of how God's love works, that his love somehow fluctuates based on our performance. And as we'll see shortly, God's love does not work that way. It's not like that. I've also found that many people who reject God, who say, I don't want to worship him, I don't want to love him, do so based on an inaccurate understanding of who God is, based on a false narrative. For example, the thought, I'm too far from God because of this thing that I've done or these things that I have not done. I'm just too far from his reach. Or God hates me. He's given up on me because of this thing that has happened in my life. Both of those thoughts are false and they come from false narratives about how God's love works and operates. It comes from this idea that God's love is somehow earned or merited by human behavior. Or that God only loves what he finds lovingly attractive. This morning, we'll see that it's our very need of God's love, our unloveliness, that attracts his love to us. God is love is one of the most important truths that any one of us could know or understand. There's a lot at stake in understanding it properly, but what are we to make of it? What, what does it mean? A couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of joining in on youth group on Wednesday night, and I got to be with a group, a small group of eighth grade boys and had a blast with them. It was a wonderful night. We were discussing in our small group the great commandments, to love God and to love God neighbor. And at one point, as we discussed those implications of those commands, I asked the boys, let's define love. What is it? I don't know if you've tried to do that recently, define love, but it's actually not that easy to do. It's, it's really not. The boys did an amazing job of struggling together and thinking out loud about what is love? What do we actually mean when we say love God? And they came to some deeper understanding that love is both this internal motive and desire for something, but it's also something that's external. It's some sort of action, a will that results in some action on behalf of other people. 
As we discussed together and as I was reflecting on our discussion afterwards, it was really clear to me that if we're going to understand God is love, we're going to need more than a dictionary or Google. We're going to need to understand biblical context and actually know something about God so that we can truly understand what it means. Because it's possible to know biblical words and to know biblical phrases, but completely misunderstand what they mean in the Bible. So if you take the phrase eternal life, in my own life, the phrase eternal life is another example of this. There was a time that if you had asked me, Jeff, describe eternal life for me, I would have focused on literally the dictionary definitions of those words. So I would have thought in terms of quantitative number of years. So eternal for me was something that just goes on and on and on and on. It doesn't end. So my understanding of eternal life was it's just life that never ends. But then we come across Jesus in John 17, 3, saying something like this, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the only, that I'm aware of, explicit definition of eternal life that we have in our scriptures. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Do you notice what's missing from Jesus' description that was so primary in mind? (laughs) Counting of years. There is nothing about time or length of life in his definition. Jesus talks about eternal life Less about a quantitative change, but more of a qualitative change, a life that would take on a new quality, that would be centered and animated by God's Spirit, that would be captured by this interactive relationship with the Lord of the universe. And yes, that life would be undying. That kind of life doesn't end. But counting years is really only secondary to the primary thing of knowing God. So I just give that as an example of, again, eternal life. If you look up those two words, you won't necessarily get what Jesus defines it as here. We need more than definitions. We need story and context and God's God's understanding of the words. And this seems to me especially important with a phrase like God is love because not only are we trying to understand the nature of God, but we're doing so with a word love that could be understood in any number of ways. I mean, just do a little mental experiment with me for a moment. Imagine tomorrow morning, this would be a great exercise, just asking a coworker or a neighbor, what do you think, how would you describe God? And then how would you describe love? And then put those two things together. No doubt, every one of us in this room would have a very unique understanding of what God is love means if all we did was take our collective ideas because those things could be understood in so many different ways. So that's why I want us to start by thinking very carefully about the very nature and being of God to understand this. Because when John says God is love, he's doing more than saying love is important or love ought to be a priority for us. He is describing God's character or nature He's saying God's essence is love. God's very being is both the source and definition of love. We know what love is by looking and knowing, looking at and knowing who God is because he's the source of it. John said it in verse 7. He says, For love is from God. 
And since God is love, love is what God does all the time. Like the sun is the source of light that shines out from it. Or like a fire is the source of heat that radiates out from it. God is the source of love that constantly flows out of him into the world. Always, yesterday, today, and forever. God cannot help but love. And get this. God didn't need to create anything in order to love. Here's where our understanding of what and who God is is so important. God revealed himself to be triune. God is tri-personal rather than unipersonal like us. God is one being who exists eternally as three persons the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This means that before God created anything at all, he was able to love within the Trinity. God the Father loved God the Son. God the Son loved God the Father. And God the Father and God the Son loved the Holy Spirit. We get an example of this in John chapter 17, verse 24. Jesus says, You loved me, before the foundation of the world. Before anything was created, the Father was loving the Son, the Son loving the Father. It's incomprehensible for us. I mean, I can say the words, he's tri-personal and I'm unipersonal, but I can't really comprehend what that means other than he's very different than us and he's revealed himself to be Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some have described that love within the Trinity as a divine dance a divine dance. I love how Tim Keller breaks it down. He says that self-centeredness is to be stationary, to be static. In self-centeredness, we demand that others revolve around us. We will do things and give affection to others as long as it helps us meet our goals and somehow fulfills us. But the life of the Trinity is not characterized by self-centeredness but by mutually self-giving love. That is, when we delight and serve someone else, we enter into a dynamic orbit where that person becomes the center and we move around them. So self-centeredness requires others' orbit around us, but God's kind of love is mutually self-giving. So God the Father revolves around God the Son, God the Son revolves around God the Father and the Spirit too, and it becomes this dance, this divine dance where they're constantly loving each other all the time, delighting in each other, delighting to give of each other for the good of the others. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit form a community of love that has been giving and receiving pure, perfect, self-giving love for all eternity. There's not a point in time that we could imagine where that hasn't been happening. That is who our God is. It's mind-blowing, potentially life-changing. There are a number of ramifications that flow from that truth. One is that our understanding of what love is needs to come from and flow from who God is, rather than our understanding of God 
coming from some understanding that we have of love. Take these two phrases. God is love and love is God. The first phrase is biblical. We just read it in the Bible and Christian. The second is not biblical and not Christian. The first phrase makes God ultimate. God is love. The second phrase makes love ultimate. Because God is love, He is the one who defines love for us. And since God is love, love then originates in God and from God. God is the center of all things. The creator of the heavens and the earth is personal and relational, triune, loving God. If love is God, God is removed from the center. And he's not the true Lord of all. God would then become subject to love. Or God would in some way proceed and flow out of love. An impersonal, abstract idea would become the center of all things rather than the personal, relational, triune God. And as I've thought about those two phrases, God is love and love is God, it has struck me that if God is primary, then we humans are in the role and position of responding to Him. He is in control and sovereign, and we submit to His ways and learn about Him and receive love from Him. We learn from Him. Love is what it is because of who God is. It's not malleable. It's not left up to our human preferences. If, on the other hand, love is God, control is taken away from God and given to humans who then construct a concept or philosophy of love that God is required to conform to. Sadly, that scenario is a common way that people miss out on knowing the only true God that Jesus talked about in John 17. If we take our concept, our abstract idea of love, and then we expect God to conform to that, we end up creating a God in our own likeness who suits our own tastes, our own preferences. We think things like, my God wouldn't do that thing because he's loving. Or God does do this thing because he's loving. And I define what love is. Or we reject God because we find that he doesn't conform to our intuitions about what love is. So God doesn't exist because if he did, the world wouldn't be this way. It couldn't be because God would intervene in some way. Thoughts like that. And that can be true both of followers of Jesus and those who are not following Jesus. Believers too can functionally live as if love is God and that God is required to conform to that standard of love that we have in our head. To combat this, we need to depend on the Holy Spirit in the place that God has put us, in the community of God's love where we find ourselves, in the church, God's family on mission. We need the Spirit's insights and direction which come through God's Word lived out in a community of other people. We need help to see where we've inverted that truth because sometimes it's very subtle when we make love God. A second ramification of this amazing truth 
that God is love and that the members of the Trinity have been loving each other for all eternity is that in the, the essence and center of all things, the core of reality is relational, self-giving love. Personal, relational, self-giving love is at the center of all things. And what that means then is that what's normal is love and loving. What's abnormal is unlove and unloving behavior. Love conforms to what is central about reality, and it will never come to an end. The trouble is that our experience in the world right now is often very different than that, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're often hurt by unloving actions, but I don't know that we're surprised that they happen because unlove and self-centered orbit around me living is, is very normal. And on the other side, when someone truly gives of themselves in self-sacrificial, self-giving love, it's surprising and shocking and very life-giving, but it's just not normal. It surprises us. That's because right now, the world is not normal. Right now, we still live in a time of death and decay, a world that is subject to it, a broken creation and broken image bearers. What God is bringing about as he redeems, restores, and renews his creation, including all of us, is love. He's transforming us into his image, which means love, because that's who he is. Love from God to us and us to God and then from us to each other and all of creation. That's where history is headed with God's people and as God redeems us. That's what eternal life is as Jesus defined it. Relational connection with the living God. So our inclusion in this divine dance that has been going on forever, our inclusion and participation in it brings us to the point where John does give us a description of love in this passage. But he doesn't just tell us God loves us. I mean, he does that. He does tell us. But he uses God's action, God's activity in the past in order to bring it to our mind. He does it by recalling for us the prime example of God's love, the gospel of Jesus, and especially the cross. Because actions speak louder than words. Right? To understand God's love, he chose to fix our eyes upon Christ and his cross. Look at verses 9 and 10 again with me. It says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's as if John is saying, do you want to know what self-giving love looks like? Look over here. Look at the cross. Look at Christ. Look at his sacrificial giving on your behalf to bring you to God. His atonement, propitiation. That is what self-giving love looks like. He sent his son into the world, the one he has been delighting in for all eternity, delighting in and loving, and in turn being loved by 
so that we could have life. That son humbled himself, took on flesh, and entered the world so that we might live through him. Just a quick aside too, when John says this was made manifest among us, this is, that's not a theoretical statement for John or something he received from someone else. John was an eyewitness of love in the flesh. He was an eyewitness of Jesus and these events. He is describing for us what he saw with his eyes. He then draws our attention in verse 10 here to God's initiating and pursuing love for those who do not love him. He says, not that we have loved God, but God loved us. And then if you look a little farther down in your passage in verse 19, he says again, very similarly, he says, we love because he first loved us. In Romans 5.8 came to my mind, it says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then a couple sentences later, it says, while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This is a key aspect of who God is and therefore of God's love. He is, he is drawn to those who have not yet entered into that divine dance of love. God's love is attracted to the unlovely to make them lovely. He does not wait for them or us to make ourselves attractive to him in some way before he loves us. The truth is, even if we had the desire to somehow attempt to become lovely and attractive to him in order to win his love, we couldn't do so. Martin Luther knew this. He's the famous reformer and an important catalyst in the Reformation. He was radically transformed by his discovery in the scriptures of justification by faith, and in particular, a new and deeper understanding of God's love. It was this aspect of God's love for those who have done nothing to make themselves attractive to God that particularly changed Luther. He was an earnest monk who lived with a tormented conscience, and it seems like a constant awareness of his own sinfulness. Despite all his efforts at finding peace, he was not able to do so in his own effort. Luther even came to the point of hating God because God demanded such perfect righteousness from him. How was it fair that God, did, God demanded of him what he seemed incapable of producing? But what was that righteousness that Luther had in mind? What was it that he thought he needed to accomplish and do in order to be okay? Well, scholars who've studied this way more than I have think it was most likely obedience to the great commandments that I mentioned earlier, to love God and to love others. To love God and to love others. And others' self-focused love is what Luther thought was demanded of him in order to win God's approval and love. The trouble Luther faced, and the rest of us too, is that knowing that we're commanded to love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength does not produce the power and ability to do so, to actually love him. Knowing that we're called to do it doesn't make it happen in us. What's needed is God's loving intervention to create in us clean hearts, to remove a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Luther's fresh discovery of God's 
pursuing self-giving love was absolutely central to Reformation theology that followed and its world-changing insistence on salvation by faith alone. Luther wrote this, The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. Doing a little contrast there. As human beings, we love what pleases us. We love what we find attractive in some way, something that could be useful for us. We love the things that will bring us joy and happiness. God's love is different. God's love creates that which is pleasing to him. God takes up delight in loving those who do not love him and cannot love him in the same way that he loves them. Luther goes on, Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. God didn't wait to love us until we became lovable to him in some way. Instead, God loved us when we needed it most, when we had no power to love him back. His love then is received by us. It's received by faith as a gift. And over time, his love, as it's poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, transforms us. And we increasingly become people who can love God and others in this way. Not perfectly, but we increasingly resemble the one who made us as his love fills us. And others have understood it this way throughout history as well. Augustine, who born in the year 354, said, by loving us, God makes us lovable. By loving us, God makes us lovable. And I have to quote C.S. Lewis, you know that I have to. He said, no sooner do we believe that God loves us than there is an impulse to believe that he does so, not because he is love, but because we are intrinsically lovable. It is easy to acknowledge, but almost impossible to realize for long, that we are mirrors whose brightness, if we are bright, is wholly derived from the sun that shines upon us. And then he ends with a bit of an ironic question. Surely we must have a little, however little, native luminosity. Lewis points out that this is something that we can believe for a moment and then quickly forget it. The truth that God is love and that we receive his love because God is love. That's why we receive his love, because God is love. It is so different than human love that loves what is intrinsically lovable. It's only because God's love is shining on us that we are able to reflect and love him or each other at all. And then John says, in what we've read this morning in 1 John, that that love of God shines most brightly at the cross. We can know and believe that God is love because God sent his world, son into the world that we might live through him. So to know God in a more deep way, to know him in a richer way, we need to continually fix our eyes upon Christ and his cross, to gaze at him with our souls, our hearts, fixed upon him, because it's in the cross that the love of God we've been describing 
was supremely manifest for us. It's there that the meaning of God as love is seen in his redeeming action. When we see that and we respond to it in love, we can say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In addition to his redeeming action, like we see right here in 1 John, throughout the scriptures, God has given us verbal descriptions of his love as well. And the most famous, I think, is probably in 1 Corinthians 13. I just want to read a few sentences of that. Description of love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Perhaps you, like me, have read that passage in the past and heard it as a series of commands that you need to obey. I need to be patient. I need to be kind. And so on. But what if instead of it being primarily a series of commands, what if it's primarily a description of love? And what love does? All of those qualities that we just read in 1 Corinthians 13 are produced not by us, but by love. If they are found in us, it's because God's love is in us. The more we see and experience that God is love, the more his love will transform us into people of God's love. And as love takes up residence within us, that is how we live. It's not meant to be a list of things that we put on it and we just check them off and do them. This is what love does. And as we are inhabited by love, by God's Spirit, we too learn to do these things. And this love of God on the cross of Christ opens up the way for us to have union with God, with this God of love. John says that we abide in God and God abides in us, that we're just together and united in him through Christ and his cross. And now with our Trinitarian eyes and thinking on, we know that that includes God delighting in us and us delighting in God the way God's been doing forever. That's what abiding in Christ is. Loving the way that God has loved us. Lives that increasingly orbit around God and his ways and his kingdoms. All of this is possible and all of this is ours because of that one phrase, the truth of it, that God is love. Because God is love, we have redemption in life with God through Christ. And this morning, we get to share in the Lord's Supper together. When we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim and remember Jesus' death on the cross through which God's love so brightly was displayed. 
This bread and this cup are visible representations. They're like a visible sermon, a proclamation of the gospel of God's love that our hearts can then feed upon and take delight in. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, all who come to faith in Him are reconciled to God, reconciled to God and transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. Through Christ, by grace, If you've responded to God's love, this is a celebration and a remembrance of that. Like Jay said earlier, if you're visiting this morning and observing, we just invite you to continue to observe. We're so glad you're here and you can see us, followers of Jesus, worshiping in a very peculiarly Christian way. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let's pray together. God, we confess and trust, we know and believe that you are love. We also know that your love is really beyond our ability to truly and fully grasp for what it is. So we pray that you would move in our hearts by your Spirit. Lord, even as we took of the bread and the cup, Lord, would you help communion, the Lord's Supper, and what it represents. Take on a new fullness for us this morning, knowing that you are love and this is all flowing out of your being from what you have been doing for all eternity. God, make us into people of love. Help us to respond to your love that we receive this week. Help us to be attuned to the way that you're taking care of us. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.